this Christmas, uh, we've done, this will be the third sermon from the first two chapters of Matthew. Matthew uh, is the first gospel in our, in our canon today, uh, but it, as I've mentioned, was written primarily for a Jewish audience, and you see that throughout um, the gospel. Um, Mark was written for, Luke, uh, uh, for Gentiles. Luke has a very heavy emphasis on, on uh, the needs of people. And then John is kind of a special category. We won't go into that today. But, but, but Matthew goes out of his way to speak to the Jewish reader because our Lord was Jewish and was born in that context. And that it is Jewish scripture that prophesied of his coming. So all of that is so significant and, and important to recognize. The first week, we looked at his genealogy and the announcement of his birth, and I, I chose through this whole series to emphasize the unexpected, because I believe, and, and I've found scholars who agree, that, that, that Matthew, one of the things he wants to do to the Jewish reader is show, admit, if you will, that the way God chose to work is ways that were unexpected. You know, they, they prayed for and expected the Messiah to come, the descendant of, of David who would reign in Zion, but God didn't do it the way they expected, right? Um, the first part of Matthew, it gives the genealogy, and there are some people on that list that I don't think any of us would have put there, right? I mean, there, there are Gentiles, there are people who, murderers, adulterers, all kinds of sinners on there. And you think, is that really the line that you want the king to come from? And you realize that by doing it in an unexpected way, God is communicating to us whom Jesus has come to serve. He's come to serve broken, messy people. And not just the Jewish people, but all people of the world, because there are so many significant Gentiles in the list. And then he's born and given an unexpected name, Jesus or Yeshua. He will save his people. Then the next week, last week, we looked at the coming of the Magi. And the Magi are fascinating. There's all kinds of discussion of who they are. Um, uh, but what's unexpected with that whole story is the Magi aren't even from Israel. Some believe they could have been Jewish as a result that's hang, ha, that were left back during the, the uh, captivity. But... but they certainly aren't in Israel worshiping, and yet they're the ones who show up and say, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And the religious leaders who know the Old Testament perfectly say, oh, well, Micah 5.2. Everyone knows Micah 5.2, that the king will be born in Bethlehem. And the unexpected thing there is, it's the Magi who go and worship the Messiah, and the Jewish leaders hang back. The people you would expect to be celebrating the arrival of the messianic king are the ones that are saying, I don't know, we'll check it out. And, and the magi not only find him, but they worship him, they give gifts to him, they show him the respect of a king. And many believe it's a, it's a fulfillment of things, passages like Psalm 72 where it says, kings will come and bow before him. And obviously one day when the Lord reigns in the millennial kingdom, that certainly will be on a whole different scale. Today we're going to finish with the last part of chapter 2. And again, it's more unexpected things. Um, 
But part of what I want you to see, and I, I've known this in the past, but it's hit me in a whole new way. And I, I think the best way to summarize it, uh, one of the things I like to read in preparing sermons, there was an old preacher, I think the 19th century, named Alexander McLaren. And I have 15 or so volumes of all of his sermons. He was a great expositor, but he, he just has a remarkable way of teaching the text. And it's always great, after I've studied all the commentaries and all that, go read a good preacher. He, and I've always said he's my favorite dead preacher. Um, I don't know why that always makes people laugh. I don't know if they wish more were dead. I don't know. But at any rate, uh, Carl Dalich is a famous uh, Lutheran Jew, a Jewish man who became a Lutheran pastor who, with a man named Kyle, wrote one of the great Old Testament commentary series. And um, McLaren quotes him. And I'd like to read from McLaren's sermon something I hope you will see in this. Um, Carl Dalich regards Matthew 1 to chapter 2, 15 as an answering to the, the book of Genesis. I didn't go through this in a lot of detail, but the very first words of, of Matthew 1 signal to Genesis 1 in the choice of the words, and in, in, in it signals to the beginning, and, and it was so subtle I didn't go into it, but, but it is the beginning. It shows the genealogies like the book of Genesis goes, the generations of each of the key characters, and so Carl Dalich said Genesis 1 through 2.15 speaks it of the book of Genesis because it begins with the Genesis of Jesus as the Old Testament book ends with the migration to Israel to Egypt. Genesis ends with people of Israel going to Egypt and, and this section ends with the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt. So he sees that chronology through verse 15. I've split it a little differently, but you see where I'm going? And then in chapter 2, verse 15, to the end of the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew, which is Matthew 5 through 7, um, he ans uh, it reflects Exodus. And here the parallels are striking. The murder of the innocents at Bethlehem, which we'll look at first, by Herod answers to Pharaoh's slaughter of the Hebrew children when Moses was born. Remember the story of Moses that the birth uh, women were told to kill all the boys? I love it. They said, the, uh, they said, well, our women are stronger than you Egyptian women. They have the babies before we get there. I just love that. Um, um, the Exodus, in the Old Testament book of Exodus, reflects Jesus' family's Exodus returned to Nazareth at the end of their stay there. The call of Moses at the burning bush where Moses hear God speak is reflected in the baptism of Jesus, where he hears the Father speak. The 40 years in the wilderness to the 40 days of desert hunger and temptation by Jesus, and the giving of the law from Sinai to the Sermon on the Mount, which contains a new exposition of the law for the kingdom of God. There is a real parallel between the beginnings of the national life of Israel and the commencement of life of Christ. Now, we don't pick up on that as quickly because we don't read the Old Testament way first century Jewish people did. But Matthew, remember, is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he, he is, he's not creating truth. He is, he is using the truth to make a pointed attempt to cause the reader to see there's something going on here. 
Jesus is reflective of the very culture of the people that were called by God, the nation of Israel. So having said that, let's look at chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, and see how this carries through. Verses 13 through 15, I've asked the question, why Egypt? Can I just say one of the things I struggle with with God, and I mean that with all due respect, is God is so terribly inefficient. You know what I mean? It's just so many things that God does, he does in an inefficient way. I've always had this weird personality thing where inefficiency makes me a little crazy. I mean, literally when I used to wear contacts, I literally gave thought to how can I go back and forth and put them in my eyes with the least number of hand movements possible. I mean, that's just strange. It's, it's just strange, but that's the way my mind thinks. And so I look at the way God works and I'm thinking, God, why Egypt? You didn't need to go to Egypt. What's the point of going to Egypt? I mean, it's not like you couldn't keep Herod in, in guard. Why Egypt? Let's see. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. If you know the last half of the book of Genesis, chapter 37 on, God uses Joseph in these remarkable ways. I believe Joseph in many ways is a predictor of the person of Christ. He almost is perfect except for he gets a little snarky over his coat of many colors and ticks his brothers all off. But he, he is a unique character in the sense that God rises, raises him up to save the nation by taking him to Egypt. And Egypt is where the nation of Israel is able to flourish. Many scholars believe that if, if, the, if Jacob and his sons had stayed in Canaan, the land of Palestine, because of all the Canaanite enemies, they would have been really restricted in their growth. But by going to Egypt and by being the children of Joseph, where for many centuries they were given preferential treatment, they were allowed to grow into this remarkable nation, possibly as many as three million people. I mean, they, that, that God provided to, for the nation of Israel through this time in Egypt in a significant way. And God chooses in the life of Jesus to reflect Israel, show how Israel is ultimately fulfilled in Christ by taking Jesus to Egypt. It's fascinating. Because he didn't need to go to Egypt. I mean, he was too young to see the pyramids. And... Verse 14, so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. By the way, Philo, the old uh, uh, historian, said there were one million Jews in Egypt at this point in time. So it, it, was, it was not a crazy thing for a Jewish family to go there. Verse 15, and he stayed there until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That's Hosea 11.1, 1, one of the prophets, who, who makes the point of reminding the nation of Israel that he called them out of Egypt to save them as a nation. Um, one of my favorite classes in seminary was because it was one of my favorite subject, apart from the scriptures, is I took a class on leadership. And I wrote a paper on how does God motivate people? You know, in, in church work, how do you motivate people? It's not like you can pay them less, right? 
uh, or fire them. I mean, it, it's, it's a real question. It's the real crucial issue of all leadership is how do you motivate people? And I, I literally went back through all of Scripture to see how God motivates people. You know how God motivates people in the sacred text? He reminds us what he's done. He, throughout the book of Genesis, he says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. How do we strengthen our faith now when things are shaky? We look back to what we know, what God has done. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I saved you from slavery to the Egyptians. What did he do for us? He slaved, Jesus saves us from slavery to our own sin. I am the God who sent my son. That's why gratitude, thanksgiving, is fundamental to a healthy Christian life. Because we live on, when we live only in the right now, what do we focus on? All the things we're dissatisfied with, all the things we're working on, all the frustrations we have, all, all of the things we'd like to change. Because we're made to be problem solvers. That's part of the creativity of humanity, which reflects in the image of God. But the weakness of it is we can get so caught up in that that we start saying, okay, God, you're doing it. Why Egypt? For crying out loud. Why Egypt? It's so inefficient. And God says, remember what I've done? See, our view of God is rooted in the things we know that he has done for us. And when we, when we go deep in that, the frustrations of what he isn't doing right now are helped. Egypt was a way that God would show Israel, the Jewish reader of the first century, that Jesus is, is fulfilling all that the purpose of the nation of Israel. But it is also a reminder of who God's very character is and that he is the God who saves us. He is the God who blesses us. He is the God who cares for us. He is the God upon whom we can depend. So Hosea reminds us, Out of Egypt, I called my son. Verses 16 and 20 is another question. Why a slaughter? This is one of the harder parts of, the, of this story. Verse 16, when Herod the Great realized that he had been outwited by the Magi, because if you remember from last week, they don't return to him and tell him they found Jesus. He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Wow. It's easy to read over things like this in Scripture and say, okay, that's a fact I'm aware of. One of the things that changed my Bible reading is when I learned to stop and think, what, what was that like? Bethlehem was probably a village of about 500 people. Not big, but scholars guess there may have been 20 boys, two, year, two years old and younger. And every mother and father in that village saw Herod's men come, rip their babies out of their hands, and watch them murder them. And you say, Lord, Why? Why do you allow such evil in the world? Can I say to you, first of all, 
God weeps over evil more than we do. He cared so much he gave his son. So when we get a little highfalutin and say, God, I obviously care about evil more than you do, we need to back off and be reminded. No, he sacrificed his son. There are a number of ways to describe this, and I don't have time to go into all of them, but can I remind you that in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, there is the curse, that, that passage which tells the consequences of the sin. God had said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. There will be consequences of evil, and it will affect childbirth, there will be pain, it will affect work, all of creation will fight against you, there will be a need for reconciliation in relationships, which is proven by the whole Cain and Abel story. In other words, God said from the get-go, if you refuse my will, there will be consequences. And if God protected us from all the consequences of sin, he would be going against his very word, which he cannot do. Now, Scripture says, and this will give you fright, it would be worse except for he restrains evil now. And we believe at the beginning of the rapture, the Holy Spirit will be drawn out of the world. And during the time of tribulation, when the restrainer is not active, that's why that book of Revelation is so horrific. Because the restrainer of evil will be gone and the time of tribulation will be beyond our comprehension. We don't know evil. Not to the extent that it can be. By the way, one of the things I was reflecting on is just I was feeling a little sorry for myself. It's my last Christmas as pastor and nobody's here. And, you know, I thought, can you imagine Christmas during World War II? When moms and wives and daughters and sisters were wondering if those millions of men would ever come back. When everything was rationed. And when, at one point, one of the most evil empires of our knowledge was killing people and we didn't know if we'd win. It's a foregone conclusion now, but they didn't know then. There's evidence that they were working on the nuclear bomb. They might have beaten us. We don't, we, sometimes we act like spoiled children. I mean, it could be a lot worse. And, and, and the, the reality is the story of the murder of the innocents would remind the Jewish reader of the murder of the boys at the time of Moses' birth. But it's also a reflection of the reason God sent his son, right? Because the world is just so evil. Uh, we are in many ways protected from it because we live in... in uh, uh, our, our country, our city is full of problems, but for crying out loud, compared to the rest of history and the rest of the world, we are so stinking blessed. And so when, when we get all obsessive about how bad things are, we neglect history and realize how bad it can be. And the slaughter of the innocents is a reminder just how bad the human heart is and why God sent his son. Verse 17, this is what was said through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. 
And after Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life or dead. Verse 18 is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, in which the prophet is lamenting the exiles. When the northern and southern kingdom were taken by Assyria, Babylon, and exile because of their sin, their disobedience to God's covenant law. And he says, during that, the voice cried in the wilderness, Ramah. There's some debate, in fact, there's a lot of debate about a lot of things in this passage. I'm not burdening you with all of them, but why Ramah? Um, because one reason, at least, is that Ramah would have been on the road going out of Jerusalem. When Judah was taken captive, they would have gone through Ramah. And so you would have had the, the, the women of Israel weeping as they were chained and humiliated and taken off into captivity. And, and, and why, why um, Rachel? I think Rachel represents the moms of Israel. The moms, the wives of Israel. She is mother of, of two of the tribes. She was uh, Jacob's favorite wife. Um, and so she represents the, the, because let's face it, in societies, it's the women who weep. I don't mean because they're weak. It's, I mean because they carry that burden. And he says, the, the, the nation weeps as they're carried off into exile. And, but meantime, when the time was finished, um, God told him to go back. So why the slaughter? Well, because that's the world in which we live. We live in an evil world. That's why the son is given but also, again, to identify with the narrative of Moses' birth so that the nation of Israel would see, you know what? It's as if this book is written by the same author because all the way back to Genesis has details that are reminded and explained and, and deepened throughout the rest of the book. What happened in Genesis is being fulfilled in Matthew and Luke and Mark and, and, and it will ultimately be filled in the book of Revelation. It all fits together. Who knew? Verses 21 and 23. Why Nazareth? Why Nazareth? So I, I'm saying to remind you why Egypt? Because it identifies with Israel why the slaughter it identifies with Moses and reflects the sin Egypt is where God saved them from the slaughter represents what God saved them from now why Nazareth this is really an interesting one verses 21 through 23 so he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of the father Herod the great he was afraid to go there, and having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So he starts to return. The natural place for him to go back to is Bethlehem. It's the city of David. It's where the Messiah is expected to be associated with. But Archelaus, one of um, Herod's sons that he didn't murder, he murders three, you know, like you do. And 
Archelaus took over the land which is where Bethlehem occurred, south of Jerusalem. Archelaus was as mean as his daddy, but grossly incompetent. Uh, So he did horrible, evil things, but he was such a goof. The nation of Israel ultimately in AD 6 sent a group to Rome and had him deposed. He was just not a good guy. So, uh, So Joseph... Although God certainly could have protected the son from from Archelaus, makes the wise decision, we'll go back to our home. And Luke, the book of Luke tells us that Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary were from anyway. That was his his natural home. But but why Nazareth? And what's so significant about Nazareth? Nazareth is a a small town. It's... it's, um, um, west of the Sea of Galilee, about 15 miles. When we go to Israel, Munir, our bus driver, is a Palestinian from Nazareth. It's always fun to talk to him about his perspective. Um, But, well, and you think, well, he says why Nazareth, because the prophets said it would be Nazareth. The problem is none of the prophets say that. There is no Old Testament prophet that says the Messiah will come from Nazareth. What's, what's the clue is he doesn't say, normally when he refers to prophecy, he refers to the prophet going back to a direct quote. But here he says the prophets say that, meaning a bigger picture than a specific prophecy of Nazareth, a bigger picture that reflects the bigger intent of the Old Testament about Nazareth. Now, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ink that's lost its life by theologians writing about Naz- why Nazareth. And some say, well, if you take the Hebrew word and change one letter, it means this. And, you know, I mean, on and on and on. Reminds me of high school football coach. Every year he gave us a, a motivational speak. You know, you want to be a champ. But the amazing thing about the word champ, if you change the A to U, you get chump. And we all said, if you change the U to I, you get chimp. If you get the I to O, you get chomp. There, boy, it's a great word, coach. Um, it just wasn't that powerful. But at any rate, the the some will write and say, well, you know, you take the word for Nazareth, Nazar, and you can change one word and it means this, or it might reflect the branch, similar word in the Old Testament of the branch and Jesus of the branch. Can I tell you why I think it's Nazareth? Do you remember when Andrew introduced Nathaniel? to Jesus? Do you remember what he said? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. In fact, one scholar says the best way to describe the reputation of Nazareth in the first century is backwoodsmen or, this is my favorite, hicks. They're a bunch of hicks. Now, if I were a small man, I might refer to College Station or Norman or I, I might use this as an opportunity to take a dig at, at towns that in my world, but you might turn it back onto me and say, aren't you from East Texas? I mean, for crying out loud, let's be careful where we go with this. Um, in the first century, Nazareth wasn't a place you bragged about. It, it was viewed, first of all, the southern part of the land, Jerusalem, was like New York, the East Coast. It was where the elites lived, both economically and religiously and civilly, that was in civic world, that was where the elite lived. Galilee was where all the farmers lived. And even today, when you go to Galilee, you see almond trees and, and beautiful farmland. It was the fertile part. It's where all the hicks lived. And Nazareth wasn't even close to the Sea of Galilee. There's a little village out there, and it had just gotten a particularly bad name. 
So why did Jesus come from Nazareth? Because Nazareth is a nobody town. And Jesus came for nobody. People like you and me. Jesus, Jesus didn't come for the elite. In fact, when he talking to the religious leaders and they said, well, we don't have need of you. He said, of course not, because I came for sinners. Of course, the irony of the text is they're the biggest sinners in the story, but they deny that they are, right? The apostle Paul talks, takes up this thing in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. And God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He's from Nazareth because God came for sinners. God came for nobodies. God came for us. Paul will go on to say, who among you are wise? Who among of you were? On and on. See, we are walking advertisements of the grace of God. And, and frankly, the body of Christ gets into our biggest trouble when we try to look better than we are and portray that somehow, you know, we're really good when the reality is the gospel says, no, the only difference in us is we know we're really bad and have embraced God's solution, the death of his son on the cross. The gospel screams humility for us. So that's why we're part of the loser sect, the Nazarenes. And even today, there's a wonderful denomination, the holiness movement, wonderful people who call themselves Nazarenes and identifying with Jesus in that way. See, God doesn't do things the way we expect. He just doesn't. He'll take the holy family to Egypt for crying out just to make the point that he fulfills what happened with the nation of Israel. He'll allow the slaughter of 20 babies because he told us the world would be evil apart from him. And to reflect the birth circumstances of Moses so the nation of Israel would see that just as Moses, the one who brought us out of slavery from Egypt, this new and better Moses will bring us out of the slavery to sin. And he allowed Jesus to be born I mean, to raised in a city of Nazareth and be a carpenter or a stonemason, depending on how you understand it, and not do anything but just live a pretty normal, perfect life until he was 30. Because he didn't come to identify with all the things we get excited about. He came to be a human being that was needy in the human sense and normal and just people because that's that's why Jesus came he, he came for people that know we need him not people who claim that somehow he's an add-on but who who desperately in our humility understand that I've got nothing to offer God so he offered me everything in his son I'm a Nazarene. 
And, and Matthew closes this section by helping us see, and especially the Jewish reader of the first century, that, that while God did nothing the way they expected him to, as it was described in the Old Testament, everything he did fulfilled perfectly what he had prophesied in the Old Testament. And that's how God works. This Christmas is unexpected. But God's still at work. All of us have experiences in our lives right now that, that we, we didn't see coming or maybe we don't even like, but God's still in control. Some of us are asking God, God, you promised this. Why this? And, and this story says God always meets his promises in a perfect way that Quite frankly, we don't always see coming. Because in the expect, unexpected, God shows us himself. That's what came at, at Christmas. And that's what we need to see. Father, we thank you for your perfect word. Thank you for your perfect will. And thank you that you're intervened in history to send your son to fulfill all that was promised, but even more importantly, to save desperately lost people like us. In Christ's name, amen.